arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Well, hello. Hello. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. I'm Vicky. How's it going? It's going good. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Using my soundboard. Hilarious. Controller. <laughs> Less of a board, more of a remote. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're, I, am, I am doing great. Good. Feeling pretty good. Feeling all right. You know, life's going pretty okay. Pretty okay is the goal. Yes. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. It's mm-hmm. pretty okay. Yeah. I'm not dead yet. Not so dead yet. Fine. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you? I'm okay right okay. now. We'll see how I feel in October. <laughs> I can't wait. Busy season. <laughs> October is going to be super fun. I'm going out to Philadelphia. Exciting. I will be going to the haunted house that is at Eastern State Penitentiary. Ooh, he'll report back. Correct. I will. I will <laughs> yeah, we've talked about Eastern State Pen on a previous episode when I went out there the first time. A long time, long, long Way time back ago. time machine. On location. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Did recordings. It was all fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really anxious to go back. Go back and see that, but October, you know, October is my yeah, yeah. We I did can't wait. we uh, we did the fringe, and we'll talk about that at a later date. Yes, because technically we're recording this before we did. Yeah, it. we ha- it hasn't happened yet in our time. We time traveled past our past timeline. Us. Um, hasn't happened. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> um. Well, uh, if this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We've got a great show for you. So great, as always. Classics, classics. Hot. Yeah, the cla- <laughs> we're revisiting all the classics, all mm-hmm. of our favorites. Um, but first, let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our news comes from St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, Florida. Florida. Like the rapper? <laughs> Florida. Yeah. Florida. <laughs> Um, so there is a woman who is being arrested for repeated calls to the police. Another one? Another one. Jeez, they have a lot of free time down there. This time, she has called police at least 12,000 times so far this year. Um, who has the time? Dude, I don't know. Really? Who has the time to dial 911 12,000 times? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. They, you know, obviously every call that they get, they have to answer because dispatchers I would hope are so. emergency, yeah. <laughs> um, emergency line. But the woman, um, her name is Carla Jefferson. She has never called for like police services. She just calls to, they say, um, this is from Fox 13. She calls to harass, to cuss and just degrade the call takers. Um, okay. She, their job's not hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, she's already been arrested twice for nonstop harassing phone calls. It was the oh, first time wow. was at the end of the June and the, at, at, at the, the end, end of the June, June. <laughs> at the end of June. And then um, the second time recently. Yeah. According to it says, according to police over the last eight months, Jefferson has called at least 12,512 times, accounting oh, for about 10 percent of all the calls coming in. You are attendance coming from inside the house. Um, yeah. Wow. There was one instance where she called 512 times over a 24-hour period. Fucking how? Yeah. And how? It was, it was more than half of the total calls that they received that day. They can't just block her number? I'd be like, block your number, bitch. 
no. But she is looking at misdemeanor charges for misusing the 911 system and making harassment. She's going to call them calls. from in jail. Her one phone call a day is going to be to the fucking dispatch. What happens? Yeah. What happens if you dial 911 from jail? Does that happen? Can you? Is it allowed? I don't know. I don't know. I've never People been to jail. People who have been to jail. Everyone. Can you tell <laughs> yeah, yeah. what happens when you call 911 and say, I want to report a crime. I'm in jail. Yeah. <laughs> crime against know. my humanity. Yeah. Um, so that's our news for today. Sweet. Don't don't harass your dispatchers, y'all. Yeah. Their job sucks. Don't do that. Although oh, yeah. I've, he- I've heard some 911 calls mm-hmm. lately where I'm just like, ooh, that's not how you're supposed to do it. I have a friend <laughs> or two that was a dis- dispatcher and like some of the stories are just like, really like this is what people call it for just like yeah, yeah it's it's kind of crazy especially out here it's like oh yeah i got a gerbil over my butt no, yeah. not. Oh. <laughs> not that right, on that note we're gonna move <laughs> on to uh netflix and kill where this week we were talking about i just killed my dad i did just watch that you did okay i have not had a chance to uh-huh. i was too busy watching 60 days in let's mm-hmm. be real okay so on June 3rd, 2019, Anthony Template was arrested and charged with murdering his father after shooting him three times. He had been the one to actually call police and confessed immediately, mm-hmm. um, saying that his dad had been drunk and aggressive. It was revealed later that Anthony had actually been abducted by now dead Bert Template when he was mm-hmm. only five years old. Yeah. He'd been a missing person the whole time. Yep. Um, it explains why Bert kind of refused to send him to school and just like keep mm. him in isolation. Poor child. Yeah. Um, Anthony was initially charged with second degree murder for the killing, but it was later reduced to manslaughter after it had been determined he had been acting in self-defense. In 2021, Anthony Template pleaded no contest to negligible homicide, receiving five years supervised probation with time served. Mm-hmm. Interesting case. Very Real interesting case. <laughs> yeah. So you've seen this. Yes. Um, the one person that i the other person i talked to would watch it said it's kind of boring but i don't know to me it seems like i didn't think it was boring no (laughs) no No. i mean they talk the guy talks slow but it's because he's had no schooling and doesn't know how to have emotional regulation yeah so just it's because most of these people are on the spectrum or have drug addictions yeah and just for some clarification so bert um who was his dead dad Mm -hmm was married to his mom at some point and yes. when they separated he took anthony with him no right no or he came st- back and stole he him? stole him came back okay. and stole him stalked her <clears throat> waited until the child was outside in the back in the backyard for a yeah. moment by himself and abducted him that's wild mm-hmm. that's what also that police would never go to him and be like yo did you take this kid because well because of the time period and yeah. the fact that his mother had a history of uh issues with substances and was clean at the time had two other children oh my was God. perfectly fine yeah um did nothing wow would not the police wow. would not re- uh, report him as missing she went around putting up posters <clears throat> yeah did all the things you're supposed to do actually did find him once and mm-hmm. then they then the dad moved them again yeah so um she gave up on trying Mm-hmm. But didn't like, I don't know. She still was like buying him birthday presents and yeah. doing all of those things. Um, but women get put in that position a lot. Yeah. Custody gets given to the men a lot. Yeah. Women get like to get painted in ways that are not great. Um, she was abused. He abused her, mm-hmm. beat her in front of his own parents. Mm-hmm. His parents 
took her away from him. Yeah. And then she was able to come back and get her son and yeah. then left officially. So it was like a roller coaster. Yeah. The he got married again. The new wife was living with them and was taking care of him. Yeah. Um, and taught him how to read, taught him how to and he was in middle school. Yeah. Yeah. Age at the time. Didn't know how to read, didn't know how to do basic math, didn't know how to do anything. Right. right. Um, and he had a brother because of her son from a previous marriage. So he did have some normalcy when they were living there, but he got into a fight with her son. That kid left, then he beat her up and she left. Oh God. And so yeah. he was back to being alone yeah. with them. Uh so So there is up. um yeah, and with that, like there is some question about this claim of self-defense because mm-hmm. of the number of times that he was shot and, and the fact that he had two guns. Yeah, like, and this comes up a lot when you're talking about self-defense claims, like, Mm -hmm. there is a line, typically, where once somebody is incapacitated, Mm -hmm. like, if you continue to shoot or um, defend yourself, like, that's crossing the line into, like, manslaughter, murder. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, like, you have this kid with just, like, an entire history of abuse that... That's also contested. Really? Because there was no physical signs that he was abused. Yeah, but he... But all of the wives were abused. Yeah. All of the other children... And he was ...said that they were abused. He was forced to not be in school. Yes. Like... And psychological and emotional abuse is just, if not more, damaging than physical abuse. And when you have all of the things... An abuser knows how to hit you in the right spot in the right way, not to make a mark. Mm -hmm. So just because no one saw a bruise on him doesn't mean that there wasn't one. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so final thoughts. Yay, nay. Good, I liked it. Good watch. It wasn't that long. It was just a couple episodes. It was like three episodes, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, definitely check it out. That is on Netflix called I Just Killed My Dad. I think it's worth a watch. It's an interesting case. Yeah. Asks a lot of interesting questions. It does. I'll it, give props to his lawyer, though. Yeah. He, he worked real hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for our listeners. We will be talking about instances of abuse and... Mm. And mine's very PG-13. <laughs> mine's kind of. Mine is very PG-13. Not, but um, what are we talking about today, Janelle? So just Vicky's bringing the awful stories today. <laughs> yes. So we're going to go back and revisit one of our favorite topics. <clears throat> I would say this is our comfort zone. Oh, my God. For sure. Um, but this episode topic came about in a roundabout way for this one in particular because, you know, we love us some cults. Yes. Um, We love us some cults a lot. I'm very fascinated by what is considered a cult Mm -hmm. and where the line of cult is. Yes. Like, I think I'm so interested in this because I don't understand how you could dupe a person so easily, right? How can you put all of your beliefs and faith into one person? Like, that confuses me. I can't understand that. Um, Yeah. So I think the fact that, like, I grew up in a very special way um, where, for better or worse, I had to pretty much – like rely on myself and think for myself. And when you don't have someone telling you what to do all the time, I think that is what informed my fascination with cults and like dogmatic practices and the idea of controlling other people. So, you know, when you're completely problem solving on your own, it's very hard to wrap your brain around the kind of behavior Mm. that, you know, these people are exhibiting when they are in a cult, you know, when they're the cult leader and when they're the cultee. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, really, it is like this perfect confluence of things mm-hmm. nine times out of ten. And there are strategies that are implemented mm-hmm. that every cult leader definitely knows about. about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard for my little traumatized brain to understand something sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to look at something that I truly consider a cult, which is politics. Okay. And I know we say we don't get political on this podcast, but to be honest, in the climate in which we are in, um, we lived in a very polarized society, purposefully so, I think. And Mm -hmm. it's really such like this kind of sad social experiment that we're in right now that I kind of want to go back and look at something from a time period that we consider like very – Happy and jovial and fun times. Yeah. Um, well, and in the 60s. <laughs> oftentimes the lines between crime and politics get a little blurry. Yeah, almost non existent. Get a little sometimes. blurry, yeah. Um, so I wanted to look at something that I came across in some readings I did a long time ago about the Democratic Workers' Party. Mm. Now we've discussed some counterculture political movements here, like the Students for a Democratic Society, but the 60s and 70s <clears throat> were really rife with these organizations. Yeah. And we also have, you know, this idealized look at the 60s like we call it the woodstock era like fighting for vietnam there's these atrocities happening but we're fighting for what's right um but you know not even under the surface even very present there is such polarization there's such violence on campuses and in the streets yeah. that it is very close and similar to the way we're living right now mm-hmm. um so i think it's kind of interesting to go back to look at uh, an organization during this time period and how it kind of relates to some of the stuff that's happening currently <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like my favorite time period too. Mm-hmm. One because it was like prime time for cults, but um, I got really into or really fascinated with the sort of like drug counterculture. Oh yeah, of the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like the whole aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. of just free love and do all the drugs, and mm-hmm. then you have these terrible things happen, like Altamont Speedway, where yeah. You know, it just goes so south so quickly. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah. Good times. Good times. So a lot of these organizations were in an immediate response to the Vietnam War mm. and the want to have a real and definitive sense of community and community care. And that's kind of where these radicalized groups came into play. The majority of my research was taken from an actual member of the group. Yanya Lalich. Uh, Lalich was a member of the Democratic Workers' Party in the 70s. Anything with the term democratic in it is usually not democratic, just so you know. Yeah, we, uh, talked, about, we talked about this not that long ago. So I'm just going to keep reiterating that so we know that democracy isn't real. Uh, so she began to realize there was something really wrong with what was going on. And so she left, went back to get her PhD and become a sociologist studying cults. Okay. Uh, Her dissertation, entitled Bounded Choice, the Fusion of Personal Freedom and Self-Renunciation in Two Transcendent Groups, covered two cults, the Democratic Workers' Party and Heaven's Gate. It is a lovely read. You can get it for free online. Um, And a lot of what I researched came from her dissertation. What is it called? It's a mouthful. Sorry. Bounded Choice, the Fusion of Personal Freedom and the Self-Renunciation in Two Transcendent Groups. Okay. We'll have a link, I'm sure. She also wrote another book later on called Bounded Choice, which is a little bit different. So yeah. make sure that you put the full title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have a link. So that sounds can. that sounds really interesting. It's very interesting. Out, yeah. A very easily digestible for a dissertation. Good. Uh, yeah. I'm going to read a little bit of the abstract so you can get a little idea of what I was kind of looking into. 
Um, so this is the first part of the abstract, quote, both were authoritarian, each advanced a worldview that required personal transformation, deep commitment, and self-sacrifice. The purpose of the study is to explore the effects of occultic systems on their participants while taking into account issues of structure, agency, knowledge, and power. The study pinpoints the transformative demand of charismatic leaders and transcendent belief systems as crucial to the fusion of personal freedom and self-renunciation. The object in such a totalistic group is to attain a far-reaching ideal. Loss of self is often a byproduct of that quest. End quote. Okay. So that's just going to get you primed for this. Now, my story doesn't have any murder or sex or drugs or anything fun. So um, we're going to put on our communist hats and we're going to think like a commie. Are you ready? Easy. (laughs) Easy. According to everybody else, I'm already a communist. I'm such a commie. Um, Which is offensive if you believe in anarchism because they're very oppositional. But anyway. Sorry. So (laughs) what is the Democratic Workers Party? It is described as a, oh, you're going to hate, everyone's going to hate all of this part, a Marxist-Leninist organization with an aim to overthrow capitalism and bring about a socialist state of being. (laughs) I mean, Yeah. (laughs) Sure. I hate sounds capitalism. Pre- it sounds, sounds pretty fine to me. Sounds fine. <laughs> um, but Marxist-Leninism is yeah. this particularly special kind of communism, which takes all the good parts of Marxist philosophy and crashes it into this very strange way Lenin interpreted communism. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a th- I once had a thing with a Marxist-Leninist, and I can tell you firsthand that you have to be bananas to believe in that kind of totalitarian set of ideologies. Um pretty weird you know i did that thing where i was like i'm gonna see you know i kind of like this the cut of this guy's jib a little bit <laughs> so we're cut gonna of your jib we're gonna see what you're all about and then when pr- that person gets comfortable and starts espousing their ideologies you're like hard out i'm Ew. gonna hit the yeah. abort button and i'm gonna get out of here um <laughs> exit 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 <laughs> i was very open-minded as a teenager now i'm like i could just stop it looking at you you are a leninist no <laughs> <laughs> i mean seen one you've seen them all right So the organization officially started in 1974 in California by Marlene Dixon. Now, who is this Marlene Dixon? Marlene Dixon was a sociology professor. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And she was at the peak of her career in the 60s. She was working at the University of Chicago. Okay. And if you know anything about Chicago in the 60s, it was absolutely bananas with political kind of issues. The climate was just like bad times. Okay. Um, we still deal with a lot of the issues of Chicago 60s. Right. Um, she was a bit of a rebel in her methodology and teaching and, of course, had far, far, far left leanings. But in 1968, Dixon participated in the various political protests happening in Chicago at the time. Democratic Convention, all of that good stuff oh, that yeah. we've talked about on lots of episodes yes. previously. Yeah. Abby Hoffman in the streets, all of that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So she went to a protest. And two months later, it was time for contract renewals. Now, I'm in academia. I work at a university. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that they do contract renewals for people who are, like, full-time, part-time professors is a little bit different than someone who's an adjunct. Academia is moving towards having nothing but adjunct professors because you can just poo-poo them and no issues. But back in this time period, it was very, very hard to get someone fired. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like, really right. hard. This is when tenure meant something. Yes. Not even not even just tenure. Like, yeah. 
being a full-time working professor, yeah, having more than one class, being in your research, like all about it. They looked at your contract and said, we're not going to ask you to come back. Now, during this period, this was actually happening a lot. A lot of professors who had slightly left leanings, whether they were liberal, communist, democratic, whatever you want, whatever you want to say, mm-hmm. um, if they were seen going to a protest or any sort of organizational meeting outside of the college, they were put on a watch list, just like they did with communists in the fifties. Oh God, um, very and most of them, Oh yeah, yeah. Most of them were ousted, sent away. So the colleges were really trying to distance themselves completely from radical, you know, ideas and politics. Sure. Which is still taking a political stand. <laughs> right. Right. Um, academia is where most of the rebels and the radicals and the people who think differently go because mm-hmm. they enjoy that kind of climate and environment. So she was booted from the sociology department, which received a huge amount of backlash from the students. They sure. held a protest of her departure. And this was written in the Maroon School paper. So I took this out of there. Uh, Quote, in October, students held a tent in on the quad to protest the lack of adequate housing. In November, 100 students demonstrated outside the inauguration of University President Edward Levi. Inside at the formal dinner, protesters repeatedly interrupted the speakers, while guests retaliated by kicking the protesters or dousing them with glasses of water. And just three days before this and they talk about the photo cover of the stupid fucking magazine. The story of the year broke. Marlene Dixon, a popular assistant professor in human development and sociology, had not had her contract renewed. The Committee of Human Development voted for renewal, but the Department of Sociology voted for denial. And its recommendation held. The sociology department would not give a reason, but the Maroon made its inference clear, describing Dixon as someone who, quote, marched out of line at November 14th's inauguration procession to stand vigil with student demonstrators, end quote. Wow. Within days, students began to mobilize, picket, petitions, just organizing all around. Demands for an open meeting with sociology professors were made. A so-called committee of 75, named for 75 undergraduate and graduate students who had attended in earlier meetings, sent a letter to the Maroons stating that they would only surmise that Mrs. Dixon's contract was not renewed for the following reasons. Her leftist politics, radical versions of sociology, emphasis on teaching rather than publication, and her gender. Of course. Now, at the time, there were fewer than 10 tenured women as faculty members across the entirety of the University of Chicago. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, that doesn't Um, surprise me. I mean, this is still, when you're talking in the 60s. Women couldn't even get bank accounts still. Yeah, this is still like very much in the the midst of the women's rights movement. Oh, yes. And she described herself as a feminist Marxist-Leninist. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, at least she was, she made no bones about like what the fuck she was about. You know what I mean? No. Take it or leave it. Exactly. (laughs) And they left it. (laughs) They left it hard. Yeah. In January, 400 students occupied the university's administrative building for 13 days. Wow. This protest was not just about Marlene Dixon. She was the impetus, but uh, it was about the university as a whole and the issues that the university had. They supported organizations that supported the Vietnam War. They were incredibly sexist in their hiring practices, and they were seeking to expand the college Mm. into the poor black neighborhoods surrounding its area effectively gentrifying the entirety of the campus area and yeah. you can totally fucking still see that today if you yep. go over to the university of chicago campus yes you can the university stated that they would form a bunch of dumbass committees to flesh it all out but of course we all know what happens with committees mm. they do nothing yeah yeah <laughs> 
One student wrote, quote, how can an unbiased judgment be expected from a committee formed from a university which claims to be a bastion of pure, value-free, uncorrupted, ivory tower thought, yet which allies itself with the war machine and acts as an agent of social repression to the black ghetto? Mm. That was a very powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so students broke into administrative offices and they graffitied the hallways after this. They marched through the quads weekly. It was just absolute bedlam. Um, eventually it all died down after Marlene Dixon did take her official departure. Okay. So she was ousted from the University of Chicago. Dixon went on to teach at other schools and found herself at McGill University in Canada. Interesting. In the sociology department. But not long after starting here, she was once again on the chopping block because I guess Canada also doesn't like communism. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, they were trying to purge all the socialist communist radicals from their departments. Her, along with another female professor, so a little touch of sexism, too, uh, were being treated so poorly in an attempt to push them from their department. Wow. By 1974, it was reported that she left the university under her own free will, but to me, it sounded like she was leaving now or get out and get nothing kind of a scenario. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, that's happened a lot. Yeah. I mean, the that doesn't surprise me. At, but like... That happened at. <laughs> you know, they do give the people these options. Like, you can leave now with your dignity and a small little bit of money, or you can get kicked the fuck out on your ass with nothing. Yeah. So people take the L and they just go. Yeah. I mean, um, it does seem like the better yeah. option, depending on. But then you can't sue. Yeah, true. So. True. <laughs> it was a truly a sexist or yeah. classist or, you know, whatever-ist it is. Um, you right. can't sue them if you take your leave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Willingly. Yeah, yeah. Um, her students there also protested when her in her stead. Um, but not to the extent that the University of Chicago had seen. Um, she had now entered her fully radicalized Marxist-Leninist feminist era and left academia altogether after this. Okay, okay. So that summer she moves to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is like, hello, mm. hotbed of communism. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, and she decided to start a revolution, otherwise known <laughs> as a political party. <laughs> I, I love that. Like, I'm going to start a revolution today. Who's going to start a revolution? It's feeling like revolution day. I woke up on the revolution side of the yeah. bed this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so it was initially started by 13 women, the uh, party. And the core founders were um, a little bit of a interesting, not quite a mix. <laughs> Seven of the women were white, primarily of middle class. At least eight of the 12 had college degrees, including two with masters and two others with uh, several years of college education. Also, 11 out of the 12 were lesbians and self-identified as radical lesbians. Okay. And this is where the screaming, raging lesbian um, kind of joking comes from, yeah. literally is from this party. Yes. Yeah. So you can thank them for that. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> One of the women had actually also been a student of Dixon some years before in Chicago. And from my reading of this, it was feeling very white savory, mm. um, which is not great. <laughs> right, right. The party held numerous meetings throughout the summer of 1974. At Dixon's urging, a central committee was elected by secret ballot. She assured the others that in spite of their small size, a leadership body was needed. As a supporting argument, she raised the example of the Chinese Communist Party, pointing out that Chairman Mao's party had begun with only six people and it had a central committee right from the start, and they're doing so good. China's Look doing at so China, good, y'all. China's <laughs> the bastion of, like, Just proper communism. Yeah. 
not allowing anyone to go on the internet or have their true identities and being recorded Good at all times. Lord. Yeah. Um, Dixon even suggested which of them should be on, you know, the leader of this. And she po- appointed herself. I should be the leader. Of course. Uh, now, I just want to point out before I get too far, Dixon's research in sociology was in thought experimentation, political uh, commitments and criticism versus the self-criticism. So she knew what the fuck she was doing, is she what you're saying. Knew exactly how to construct a political party. <laughs> oh my um, god. So these are all very, very kind of cultic ideologies in and of themselves. So when you put them together with a woman who was at her fucking wit's end, let's be honest, with her career path, you're gonna get like this explosive kind of radicalization and wow. cultic experience. Yes, yeah. Now, recruitment was massively important to the movement. They held lots of meetings, hit the streets looking for supporters. They wrote all the classics, leaflets, papers, books. They were stating their beliefs in such classical readings as principles of dialectic leadership and on the world situation, Oh, uh, which you can find and still read today. Yeah. Very boring. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I just not. Neither of those titles were like, I want to get that. Ooh, dialectic leadership. You got me. Mm. Um, so recruits took on uh, new names, too, with the organization, which is very classic cult. They pooled together their income and resources. Classic cult. And they worked at assigned tasks for 10 hours or more. And the other activities that they were doing was all to reinforce the collective culture. And not have any sort of individualism at all. Of course. Classic cult. Classic cult. If you were selected as a head official, you were supposed to dedicate your time solely to the cause and have no other job, which is always a great idea. (laughs) You were also expected to dedicate time to the cause alone and not your family. Of course. So, classic cult tactic. Um, A lot of these women were lonely, radicalized lesbians, so it wasn't a problem. Right. (laughs) They were like, it's fine. It's fine. There was also about a two-to-one ratio of female to male, so there were men involved. And one year after the initial meeting of uh, foundation, they adopted their belief systems officially and officially voted on inserting Dixon as leader, which was like, wasn't really a vote. Um, and they initially supposed to kind of have a regular election for the position, but Dixon wound up being the permanent leader and they would no longer hold any elections. Sounds similar to Putin. Classic cult. Classic cult. (laughs) Dare I say, Russia is a cult. (laughs) Hmm. Controversial opinion, Janelle. (laughs) Um, Please don't crucify (laughs) At the early stage, Dixon instilled a sense of discipline in everyone, as well as an aura of secrecy. That's why we're doing the name changes. We're not going to let anyone know what's going on internally. She described it as a paramilitary formation. Oh, no. Which is never good. Yeah. As she impressed upon the others that were creating this with her, there was potential for the state. The state, meaning the FBI or the local, like, Red Squad police that was in California busting up communist activity. Oh, yeah. Um, I forget that was a thing. Yeah. They just had, like, raid squads for the commies. Yeah. They were very worried that they were going to be infiltrated. So Mm -hmm. that's why they did all of the secrecy. They wanted to build a solid movement and overtake the state for the people. It's all for the people. Mm, the government sure. was was on close watch. Let's yeah. be real. Like, yeah. let's not be stupid. Um, they were watching this organization and several others. And if you remember all the bombings that we talked about of the Colorado power grid and one of my earlier episodes with the the student Democratic Party. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That and Patty Hearst, like, that was like the FBI is like, we need to get our fucking shit together on these organizations. Mm. So 
It was over for them. Oh, yeah, because the Patty Hearst thing was like a big commie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Commies are just ruining everything. Big commie thing. Yeah, yeah. big commie things. Eventually, the organization required a 24-hour commitment by members, which meant no time for family at all. For the most part, the people involved were okay with this. They had recruited their friends and family into the organization, so it's no big deal. Sure. Um, But they also targeted people who had little to no family. Hmm. Interesting. Commit your life to communism. Yeah. Um, I mean, you definitely go for, like, more vulnerable populations because it's easier. (laughs) And they easily rely on you for Mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. So they were doing some, like, activities. They were doing study groups. They were doing local strike support. They were doing interventions at leftists, like, affair meetings and various kind of, like, other workplace activities. Going to bat for people who think that they were being persecuted because of their beliefs. Sure. Group members were extremely secretive about their affiliation. Typically, they represented themselves in public as belonging to a group of a group of a group that was not at all related to the Democratic Workers Party. Of course. Oh, those guys? No. Not me. Very classic. Not me. They grew quickly from 125 to 175 in the first couple years. And at one point, the organization had 300 to 1,000 people coming in and out. Wow. Wow. The organization created a printing company, which became the main, like, arm of the organization. That's where they were getting all of their money. They were printing things not just for themselves, not just their own materials. Sure. They were pr- printing other books and leaflets for like-minded individuals who had very similar views, um, which I guess was a big thing because they made enough money to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, like, at this point in any, like, cult venture, like, money is important. Money is mm-hmm. a big thing because you gotta have something to like fund your lifestyle fund your fund your cult yeah so they also organized other smaller groups outside of them as a tactic um to kind of be arms of the dwp Mm. so this is why they were saying that they were a group of a group of a group so that they didn't have direct affiliation with the dwp although the headquarters were in san francisco the party had stations located in Los Angeles, Nashville, Milwaukee, Washington, D.C., and New York. I was like, Milwaukee and Nashville? What? Hotbeds of communism. Classic Wisconsin yeah. and Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other ones I can totally understand. Right. But yeah. Nashville and Milwaukee. I wouldn't expect a ton of communists to show up in Milwaukee, but I hey. would say Chicago. Why not make a Chicago office? There's so much communism in too Chicago. Too obvious. Right? Way too obvious. We're being watched. In 1978, the organization was at its peak. They organized lots of petitions, protests in and around the Bay Area. They were attempting to stop lots of propositions from occurring that would take land and give it over to developers. These propositions would wreck people's chances of home ownership, would completely decimate land in the area, giving it over to, like, industry instead of farming. It was just a big fucking mess over there. Right. They positioned themselves as as being working class. They were really working class, even though next to none of the founders ever worked a hard day in their life. (laughs) We're so working class. Sounds very familiar. Yes. (laughs) That is how they attracted Yana Lalich in the first place into the organization. She went up through the ranks and became a leader in the organization. She was a Serbian immigrant working class woman. Okay. Her mother... And her lived in Wisconsin. They were bottom of the barrel poor. So her mother didn't even speak English. Wow. Like, 
It was that's as working class as you can get. Yeah. yeah. Now, according to Lalich's personal accounts, Dixon would sit in meetings at the front like a king and commander. People would wait on her, light her cigarettes for her, give her food and drink, and take oh care my of God. her. Like back rubs, massages, do errands for her. Of course. Pack her bags when she would take trips, like everything. Dixon was taking a greater and greater interest in Eastern Europe and all of the communism happening in there, over there. Because uh, they quite, know how to do communism they right. They hard in Eastern <laughs> Europe. Um, not by choice. Yeah, right. More because Russia, but sure, it's fine. Sure, She would go on trips quite regularly to international conferences and meetings in Europe, particularly Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. Her goal was to get invited to the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh-huh. I mean, Bulgaria is the place to be for that. Yeah. <laughs> So much of these activities were actually really alienating her from the other people in the Democratic Workers' Party because they were like, we want to care about the people that are here in our immediate area, not even the country as a whole. Yeah. Like the Bay Area, California. We want to start here and work our way out. And when you're taking this leap from talking to people on the streets about local ballot propositions to getting excited about what's going on in fucking Bulgaria, yeah, it's hard to kind of parse that out. Sure. That makes sense. As the 80s set on, Dixon began to start traveling every single year, going to European countries, practicing what she was preaching. She would be gone for months at a time. Um, And if you remember, the 80s were big Cold War times. (laughs) So there's lots of tension and she's going to these countries that are having immediate attention, like immediately oppositional to the United States. Yeah. Super commies, super USSR. When she came back after one visit in 1981, she wanted to start changing the image of the group. The Cold War started peaking, and she wanted to take away the outward appearance of uh, them being Marxist and communist. They wanted to kind of, like, do a little, you know, check up and be like, let's be a little bit more appealing. Let's take away the hammer and sickle and, like, let's put something fun. (laughs) Make it fashionable. We can make it a total vibe. Yes. So still, they wanted to practice what they preached, but give it a makeover. She even wanted to change the name to the Alliance Against American Militarism. That sound that again, one of those things that like sounds very positive when you say it. But I don't like it when the American military takes over places. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Light communism. Mm. (laughs) In the fall of 1985, Dixon began talking about. Uh, taking a small number of the party intellectuals and those who had money and setting up a think tank on the East Coast. Anytime someone says think tank, I want to punch them in the face. <laughs> she talked openly about getting rid of the riffraff at the DWP, meaning the rank and file militants who knew nothing of the discussions within the inner circle, which was made up of anywhere between four to ten people that she trusted. So she wanted to get rid of pretty much everyone except for the people immediately around her. She's like, I don't like this vibe. This vibe is off. That doesn't sound like much of an organization after that. It just right? sounds like a small get-together exactly. group. <laughs> so over the years, Dixon's behavior had become more and more dysfunctional with clear signs of alcoholism and paranoia. Mm. So classic cult. What happens when you start hearing like some dissonant kind of rumblings? You want to start paring down that inner circle. Oh, yeah. You're you definitely start putting like up barriers between the top tier and the bottom tier. Mm-hmm. The worker bees and the people who don't do anything. Right. So that's what she was doing. Now, her alcoholism was kind of a secret. Only the inner circle knew that she was a raging fucking alcoholic. Um, but how else are you going to write 
the classics that they were writing without being fucking trashed. It's true. <laughs> and like, honestly, like I can think of, you know, at least five cult leaders off the top of my head. That's oh like God. towards the end, they were taking a lot of drugs or drinking a lot and like mm-hmm. writing all these things. Oh, and yeah. this is the same time. Paranoia. Paranoia is big. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is classic cult. Mm-hmm. She was kind of keeping people sheltered from her behavior i would say mm-hmm. um and a lot of the top tier of her organization were making sure that nobody saw her in these states she would say a lot of things in these kind of manic erratic ways her decision making style was kind of like spastically like just blah, you know stream of consciousness i guess yeah few however were spared <laughs> Um, and some people had to work 18-hour days or, you know, have endless sessions with her 24 hours at a time in her inner circle. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot. This is when they started doing criticism, self-criticism sessions. Okay. This is, this is where it gets really fucking weird. But also a cult tactic. It's a little yeah. – it's just kind of, you're going to draw a lot of parallels to Scientology yeah. in this, yeah. I feel. Don't worry, we'll talk about this in more about it, too. Yeah, so the criticism versus self-criticism is a methodology that they used that she wrote a great deal about in her sociologist kind of research. We're going to put heavy quotes on that. Where they would talk about outward criticism of the group, and then they would self-criticize the group as a way to kind of attain betterness. Yeah. So basically talking shit about themselves to themselves yeah. as a way to get past it. And achieve a better organization. Yeah. Yeah. Very Scientology. Yes. It was also at this point where they started doing this weird self-criticism campaign. Okay. So they would take everything negative that was said about them in the press or or the organizations, and they compiled it into a booklet that they would hand out on the street. And they would say, you see this this presumptuous garbage that's written about us? And then look at me and talk to me. How could that be true? Oh, my God. How could you talk with me and see the thing that was written and say that those things are true? And if you talk to me and you see me and you see the kinds of things that I do and how ridiculous this stuff is in this pamphlet. Sure. How ridiculous is everything else that you're reading and consuming? How ridiculous is that book that you're reading and the news that you're like watching? Which sounds like good logic, but like so manipulative. Mm, it is. <laughs> but the funny part of all of that is that the reality was the booklet was becoming something that was passed out that people were keeping that were saying, don't go to this cult. Oh, really? These reasons. So it became like an anti thing towards them and people were taking the leaflets and the booklets and being like yeah no you are a cult yeah look you just told me all the reasons why here they are One, here's two, three. the reasons <laughs> lots of people were calling them cults at this time wow. and they put in that booklet all of the things those people were saying about them being a cult yeah and they're like we're not a cult because look at me see me feel me put your hand on my chest i'm a human yeah we're all this together it's humanity not me manity it's (laughs) it's certainly an interesting tactic it is Um, backfired hard time big time people like yeah you guys are a fucking cult bro (laughs) um now this was the basis for a lot of lalich's research after leaving the group was like studying these tactics comparing heaven's gate like being like what is it about these people 
And so she came to this point where she started discovering this methodology, this very clear methodology of control that was used mostly by Dixon, but then touched on a little bit in Heaven's Gate. And it was all about the charismatic leader and having these these few categories of control. So in her dissertation, she goes a little bit more in depth about this, but I'm going to touch on some of the categories of the charismatic leader and cult operations. So first is the charismatic authority. This is the emotional bond between leader and follower. It lends legitimacy to the leader and grants authority to his or her action while at the same time justifying and reinforcing followers' responses to the leader and or the leader's ideas and goals. The relational aspect of charisma is the hook that links a devotee to a leader and or their ideas. Mm -hmm. So if you see someone getting really excited about something, like, oh my God, I love this artwork. I'm going to talk about this artwork. It's going to be so great. You're inclined to get a little excited too. Even if it doesn't appeal to you directly, you're inclined to get like a little excited because somebody else is excited. Yeah. So the next set is the transcendent belief system. And this is the overreaching ideology that binds adherence to the group and keeps them behaving according to the group's rules and norms. It is transcendent because it offers a total explanation of past, present, and future, including a path to ultimate, quote, salvation. Most importantly, the leader's group also specifies the exact methodology or what she calls their recipe for the personal transformation necessary to qualify one to travel on that path. So we have this goal to make the world a better place. How do we achieve that goal? We have all of these militant ideologies of how to be a communist in the Democratic Workers' Party to achieve this goal of ultimate peace and tranquility under communism. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Um, Sure. (laughs) So next is systems of control. This is the network of acknowledged or visible regulatory mechanisms that guide the operation of the group. It includes the overt rules, regulations, and procedures that guide and control members' behavior. So you get the person excited. You say, this is our plan. This is our belief system. And then you start stacking more rules and regulations in between all of that belief system. Yeah. A stepping ladder to the ultimate transcendent. Um, Lastly is the systems of influence. Now, this is the network of interactions and social influence residing in the group's social relations. This is the human interaction and the group culture from which members learn to adapt their thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors in relation to their new belief. So setting up that inner circle, having them disseminate information down and down and down and down, having this chain of command and very clear boundaries of who is and who isn't in this group and who is and who isn't part of the inner circle. Yeah. Now, her writings basically outline what she calls and titles her dissertation, The Bound Choice. You have this mission to change and that your choice is an illusion because it is bound by the whims of the cult. She also uses the terminology of thought reforming instead of brainwashing, which I thought was a really interesting distinction that I wanted to note because brainwashing has this implication uh, that you have no choice, right? You are like Alex in Clockwork Orange. You have your fucking eyes gouged open. You're strapped down. Your eyes are pried and you are forced to watch this. But with thought reform... It's all about your method and way of thinking being reorganized. Yeah. It's about your free will being molded and altered so that you function under the group without hesitation. 
And you can read about this like really intense distinction through one of the other kind of psychologists that uh, Lalich talks about in her work a lot, Robert J. Lifton. Um, Their particular psychology writing uh, gets really into this and how the mind works when this is happening. So Mm -hmm. it's an interesting read if you're interested in that. Now, Lalich left the group only after a series of events, unfortunate circumstances to happen. Sure. Um, Her mother had been diagnosed with cancer and only had a short time to live. So she moved her from Wisconsin to California after getting approval from Marlene Dixon. Right. While her mother was there, she never saw her. So she approached Marlene Dixon and asked permission to have dinner with her mother every night for 45 minutes. Okay. Fair. (laughs) Yeah. That seems like a reasonable request. It was all granted. (laughs) Oh, good. Then Dixon said, oh, how about having your mom do some light filing for the organization at the headquarters to give her something to do? Uh-huh. So. Already it's like, how can I utilize this, exactly. new, person this new person in a way that dying. benefits me? Yeah. Um, which is perfect for paperwork because she's going to die and not sell any secrets. Um, so God. someone from the organization would pick her up because Lalich was in – like a top tier position. So she was gone almost 24 hours a day working for this organization. So someone from the organization would pick up her mother, drive them to work, have them file paperwork just for a couple hours, not a full Mm -hmm. day, and then come back home and she would stay there. Then she would wait for the 45 minute dinner, you know? (laughs) So everything was good. She agreed on this. Things were going great. But one night, Lalich returned home to find her mother dead. She told Dixon she would be sending the body back to Wisconsin and she would be putting together the funerals. She's going to need some time. Um, Dixon said, I hope you're not thinking about going to the funeral. Uh, yeah, it's my mom. And that was the last straw. Wow. Okay. That's fucking rude. She left, put together the funeral with her aunt, um, almost didn't come back, but She did return, and a short while later, in 1985, she was part of one of a group of people in the organization to push back and start the rapid decline of the organization. Yeah. The original members were done um, with Dixon, and their their thought was this. There's no revolution. We've been doing this since the early 70s. It's the mid-80s. Nothing has happened. Mm -hmm. This has changed from being about for the people to being about you and what you're doing. And not about where we live and the people we are surrounded by and helping people. This is from um, her paper. Quote, they broke the bonds of silence, first with each other, then revealing to the rest of the members what had really been going on behind the scenes. All Dixon was out of the country, the inner circle called together the membership and spoke out. After weeks of emotional and wrenching speak bitterness sessions, the night before Dixon's return, the members convened and voted unanimously to expel their leader and dissolve the DWP. A special committee was chosen to inform Dixon the next day upon her return from one of her Eastern European trips. Yeah, so if you're leading a cult, you cannot (laughs) leave for long periods of time. No. Especially without having people in charge that you trust to continue running things the way you want them run. Not, Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, it it doesn't seem to me like she really had even that one person. She had, like, this inner circle, but even they were like... All right, while she's gone, like... They saw all the bullshit. Yeah. They saw her drunk ass fumbling around. They yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. So when Dixon returned, they called a meeting. They announced to her they needed a change. As Dixon sat down, she motioned for someone to light her cigarette, and no one moved. The look on her face changed to horror, and she knew something was up. They told her that she was being cast out of the... Di- and the DWP was being dissolved. 
She basically waited for them to finish and then stormed off. Wow. It would take a entire year for the assets of the group to be divided back up and given back to members. This is when Lalich went back to college and got her PhD. Mm-hmm. I did not find anything about what happened to Marlene Dixon after this. Really? It's like she just ghosted into the wind. I have a feeling. I surmise that she went back to Eastern Europe. Yeah. And stayed there. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Um, but there's nothing that I found about anything relating to her after 1985. Really? It's like she just disappeared. There's so lots strange. of stuff during her time with the DWP where she was doing interviews and writing books and all of these things. And there were writings that came out, but like where she was and what she was doing is like a fucking mystery to me. Huh. And even Lalich was like, you know, what happened to her? No one really cared to know. Yeah. Um, all the people left and went back to their normal lives. And she stated in an interview that she did that I had listened to that – it was amazing and astounding that she didn't incite anyone to violence or yeah. incite anyone to do anything <clears throat> truly radical. Sure. The only thing that they were doing is controlling people's lives and taking their money. The classic cult stuff. <laughs> right. The only but, things. But yeah, yeah, but they you're were absolutely never, right. They never went that to- – they towed the line sure. of going too far. Sure. Right? These people willingly gave them their money. It wasn't like, you know – other organizations where they say, I got something on you or whatever. They willingly gave them that, the money. They had a cause to fight for. And so it was like, I'm all in. So why wouldn't I give you my money? And yeah, I'm busy. I'm doing this thing to change the world. So not talking to my family for a while is totally normal. Sure, sure. So they made it all seem very, very normal. And her background in sociology and doing research and thought control really informed the methodology of this and how she truly made it into a cult. Yeah. But it poses the question when you look at things happening now and groups that are are currently happening and certain sections of political parties that are splintering, Mm -hmm. how easy it is for something to go from an ideology to a cult. Yeah. It's not hard. Yeah. It's all about thought control and it's all about – Taking a person's fears or desires and wants mm-hmm. and showing it to them and how how you can get it there for them. Right, right. So that is the Democratic Workers' Party mm-hmm. and what cults are all about. Interesting. <laughs> So now for the murder. <laughs> mine was light. No and murder. Fluffy. No murder. Just light abuse. Yeah, mine is all about the psychology of cults. Yeah. Not really about any crime necessarily. <clears throat> so I, just like you, Janelle, mm-hmm. love cults. I was yes. very excited. Decided to look at something I was not super familiar with. Um, you may have heard of them, but they I definitely seem like this group has kind of just like dropped off the radar Mm -hmm. although i will say as i was doing research um hbo i think is working in the process of releasing a documentary about this group in the next year i think next year they're gonna do it it. um so today we are talking about synanon 
Ah, I have heard a little bit about this. Okay. Not too much. Okay. <laughs> Good. Because it's kind of weird. Because every time I heard it being mentioned, it was like in relation to talking about other cults, mm-hmm. I heard Cinnabon. Cinnabon. And I was like, ooh, a cult of cinnamon yeah. buns. Mm. <laughs> so Cinnanon is spelled S-Y-N-A-N-O-N. Cinnanon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the origin of Cinnanon sort of begins with this man named Charles E. Diedrich, who was barely functioning alcoholic from Ohio. My dad. <laughs> I was like, is this going to relate? Yeah. Oh, wait. I have a, I have that. <laughs> Coming in with the dad joke. Um, so when he was four, his own alcoholic father. Don't tell me his father died. Died. Is this my father? In a car accident. Is his name O'Malley? Yeah. <laughs> leading uh, oh leading God. him to be raised by his mother, who was a devout Roman Catholic. And traumatized for life, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Almost um, kind of echoes to what we talked about during our live show when I was like, the classic combination of alcoholic father and overly religious mother. It's true. <laughs> it's classic. It's true. Yeah. Uh, around the age of 14, Diedrich became an atheist. Hell yeah. <laughs> and began happily drinking. Well... That's where I took a divergence. It's like, yeah, went out too. Um, yeah. So he did grow up, get married, um, and then got divorced from his first wife. Uh, he then decided to move out to Southern California, where he met his second wife, who just insisted that he get help with his his alcoholism. Well, that's good. So <laughs> before trying Alcoholics Anonymous, Dietrich actually, um, which some people say is a cult. Yeah. Uh, And Alcoholics Anonymous started as an organization in, or he, I'm sorry, he started Alcoholics Anonymous in 1956. But before that, he took part in an experimental program at UCLA, Uh which used LSD (gasps) in an attempt to cure alcoholism. Oh, they were using LSD for so much. Like literally everything. Oh my God. It was like, oh, you got a problem? LSD about it. Well, I mean, if your alcoholism (laughs) stems from depression, Mm -hmm. that could be a roundabout way of doing it. Yeah. And there has been a lot of evidence suggesting that things like microdosing are actually Actually, really valuable for I know so many creative processes or <laughs> working through issues yes. or whatever. So. I thought about it for my own trauma, but then I'm like, every time I've done a drug, I've freaked the fuck out. So yeah. maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So I obviously that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna say LSD does not cure alcoholism. No. Um, so he did decide to join AA, which, like I said, he did in 1956. Um, but his wife eventually divorced him anyway. However, Diedrich became a super fan of AA. Like he, he was AA'd so hard. Yeah, he <laughs> AA'd so hard. He was a super fan of like the program and all that it stood for. He became a regular speaker. They talk a, a lot about him often, like monologuing in front of these AA meetings. Like he just would go on and on. Okay, so um, the ultimate sponsor you want. Yeah, right. Yeah, but. There was one complaint that he had, and that it was at the time, and I think still, AA. Religious, right? No. Oh, because um, he's an atheist. Not the religious part. I'm I'm surprised. AA did not have any room for substance abusers in their program. It was strictly oh. alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a group in 1953 that had been formed specifically for. Uh, substance abuse called Narcotics Anonymous, mm-hmm. but it was like super disorganized. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a totally separate thing. The Sometimes they're, you know, people do both. Yeah, the organization was like super disorganized. The meetings were not 
regular by any means. I'll also say if you're looking at Narconon now in our 21st century, don't go because it's a Scientology run program. Sick. Um, <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> yeah. With a drug yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was so so they had this, but it was like wasn't really the ideal program for substance abuse also. So he decided to take matters into his own hands and make a group for all types of addicts that did not discriminate based on what you were addicted to. That was initially called the Tender Loving Care Club, but was soon renamed to Synanon. Okay, because that sounded like a furry TLCC? Like- Oh, like a furry lovers yeah. convention. <laughs> I don't know that furries were a thing back then. I mean, <laughs> they probably were just not to the way we think. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> so Synanon started out, as many cults do, as a really like positive organization. Like it was a How are you gonna hook them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like the effects could be seen, like it was this really like popular, positive change organization. And this was also at a time that most of society saw addicts as just kind of a lost cause. Like there wasn't really anything to be done. Still do sometimes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's, I mean, that doesn't even mention like a large portion of addicts are part of marginalized groups, which like people Mm -hmm. were like, we don't want anything to do with these people. So they didn't really give a shit about like the groups that it affected either. Mm -hmm. But the creation of Synanon was like the first sign for the American people that there might be some hope of recovery for addicts, especially if they entered a program like that. So the way it was set up in the beginning was that it had this sort of like three-tiered system. So first you had members living and working inside of the community. That was like stage one. Mm-hmm. Um, they then saw them working outside of the community, but still living within Synanon. Tier three saw you kind of like living and working outside of the community, but you would still attend regular meetings. And then after that would be graduation. That's kind of how you you graduated the program. So it was really immersive, but like you saw the sort of like, you know, tiers and a path to exit, Mm -hmm. which will become important later. Because most cults, you don't have to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And Diedrich had this like kind of unique approach to how he ran his program. Um, Although not really when you look at the swath of cults out there. Mm -hmm. So much of it was centered around honesty and really just like cutting through the bullshit. Like we're just going to get down to brass tacks and it's centered business speak barf. (laughs) The central method of this treatment was something called the game. Now, this is what I've heard of yes. a little bit. Mm-hmm. So when addicts came in for treatment, they were forced to give up cold turkey. Like, they did not use any sort of, like, weaning drugs or anything um, and just were forced to suffer through withdrawal for a few days. Afterwards, they were introduced to the game, which was – it's kind of like a group therapy. Uh, if you watched the deep end about Teal Swan, like, mm-hmm. this definitely gives me, like, that kind of oh, yeah. vibe. It's a very similar type of group talk. Members would sit in a circle where they would be encouraged to shout their frustrations or like things that bothered you about other people in the group. And meanwhile, you would have people like coming back and saying shit about you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which was supposed to be used as an aid. It was meant to aid you in learning about yourself. Like also. Okay. (laughs) And 
at the height, like sessions of the game could last anywhere from like an hour to like 48 or 72 hours. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm not committing that hard. <laughs> yeah. So I do have a little clip I want to play of it's, <laughs> you heard at the beginning, it's like a present, a prudential yeah. program thing about Sinanon, <laughs> Sinanon in prison. Um, Cinnamon bun. That's all I hear. And it's, Kind of, they filmed this group of guys like participating in one of these, um, like the game sessions. So it's it's a couple of minutes, but I just think it's it's interesting to <laughs> to hear. So let me play that. The meeting takes place deep within the original wall of the prison itself, a room called the cave. Less than a third of these men are here for taking drugs. Their number is filled by thieves, rapists, murderers. Nothing is planned. There are no rules, except against violence. There are no prison authorities present, not even a guard. Only the inmates and Synanon members from the outside. What is about to take place is what Synanon describes as a gut-level discussion. What Synanon calls, looking at it the way it is. If you got such a tough left hook, how come you got to use a pistol to pistol with people out in the street? Because it's more convenient. It's more convenient. You know what, man? If I didn't know you, I would say that you were the next thing to Sonny Liston. You know, the way you talk and carry on, you know. But look at how many how many fights do you have? Anywhere. You had none. You've had none. You've had two fights here in this joint. And they're phony. Yeah, in the ring. And you got nothing You know nothing about no physical fitness. You got some little punk up there. You're just grabbing onto what he says. You said you know, that every the things that you do kind of point out to you that you're a psychopath. I've been under well, the influence of alcohol or narcotics, you know. But wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Otherwise, real legal. Wait, 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 put me in predicaments where I come to jail. You weren't under the influence when you belted what you call it up on a tear. Well, you know, that was a different thing. Why wasn't it? Hey, look here. Well, I, I, since you're aware that you... I stopped. You know, if I hadn't have been under the influence... If I had been under the influence, I wouldn't have, you know. Hey, hey look at so this. what? Look at this. Yeah, why? Well, you know, I haven't uh, really uh, found out why yet. You know, except he uh, pushed my butt. No, you're that ain't the reason. Why don't you look at it the way it is? And you had a setup. That's the way. That's how... Why you hooked him, you had a setup. You had a push... Push over. Look at this, Don. You knew you could take him. You hit a sissy. That's all you hit. Sissy run his mouth, too, you know. I'm not particularly... Everybody else in there was running their mouth. Why didn't you hit one they of those dumb, guys? You know, they oh, dumb. Yeah, they yeah, dumb. Who else was in that cell? Who else was in that cell? The Synanon session has been called an emotional battlefield. What these men are attacking is destructive behavior and self-delusion. But what you are hearing is not aimless anger or senseless hostility. One premise of Synanon is that you attack what a man is doing, not what he is. Okay, so wow, that's just an example. What a nag fest. Yeah. <laughs> and that part of the end is kind of important because they did really preach these like principles of nonviolence. Like mm-hmm. you never attacked like the character of somebody. It was like. Just what they're doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which all sounds well and good. <laughs> Until, Until it's not. freaks the fuck out. Mm. <laughs> so it's safe to say that Synanon was like not 
popular with the neighbors because lots of screaming lots of yeah that but they were not fans of like drug addicts showing up in their neighborhoods um so they really sort of the members faced incredible abuse at the beginning this of course only strengthened the group itself they kind of like you know have this common experience of like people not liking them in the neighborhood and this, as Gizmodo put it, quote, it uh, elevated Dietrich to martyr status, suffering unjust incarceration for his beliefs after he was put in jail for just under a month for zoning violations and operating a hospital without a license in 1961. But the early 1960s also brought the Hollywood crowd in, who was much more welcoming and enamored by this like whole thing. So it was, you know... It was the 60s after all. So sitting on through these like huge parties where they would have jazz, like jazz artists and stuff come down. And one of the things they talked about was like, there was a lot of really popular jazz artists that were looking for like drug rehabilitation. There's so much heroin in jazz. Yeah. So much heroin. Yeah. Yeah. So we throw these huge parties and it would attract the likes of Leonard Nimoy, Jane Fonda, Charlton Heston. And Milton Berle. That all checks. It all tracks. They they also hosted celebrities as speakers, including the creator of the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Hell yeah. (laughs) Sci-fi author, Rad Bradbury, Ray Bradbury, Mm -hmm. um, and the original host of The Tonight Show, Steve Allen. Okay. There were also like, you know, your standard like counterculture figures that popped in and out, including Timothy Leary, Buckminster Fuller, and Cesar Chavez. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Yeah, no. This is a, this is a concoction of people here. <laughs> they just pop in and out. Politicians were like giving a ton of support for the program also because they... Because all of their sons were probably trying Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, really, they were like, look at the success rate. The success rate is 80 to 100%. Like, Synanon is telling us that it's 80 to 100%. Sure, where's it the It was not true. Yeah. <laughs> That was fake. Oh, yeah. I, I 100% believe yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But it was seen as just sort of a game changer for uh, drug addiction and rehabilitation. So in 1965, Sinanon brought up a bunch of land in Marin County to expand their facility, eventually owning 3,300 acres in total. In 1965, um, 1965 was also the same year that there was a movie made about Sinanon, which I do kind of want to watch. It, of course it went by the same name. It was called Synanon. It starred Edmund O'Brien, Chuck Connors, Stella Stevens, Alex Cord, Eartha Kitt, and Richard Conti. What a fucking cast. Right? And <laughs> Eartha Kitt. The trailer. What? Okay. The trailer. Oh my God. I will link it in the okay. in the show notes. It was made by the f- with full cooperation from Synanon, and it was filmed on location. Well, then. (laughs) Yeah. Between 1965 and 1970, Synanon saw rapid expansion and began to purchase even more property, eventually ending up with $7 million worth of property, including real estate in Santa Monica, West L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, Tamales Bay, Reno, Detroit, New York City, and Puerto Rico. That's a lot. lot. Yeah. Detroit, I mean, it's not Milwaukee, but... Detroit, I could a thousand percent see that. That's yes. where we have Motown, which is also rampant with heroin usage. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is also like 
sort of where a shift begins to happen. So rather than an exclusively rehabilitation-based program, Synanon began accepting non-addicts and lifestylers into the group, changing, <laughs> changing its mission to um, research into the causes of alienation and delinquency. So are lifestylers like influencers? Let's talk about it. <laughs> now, again, this is again from Gizmodo. By 1968, a new type of Synanon membership was established, the Lifestyler. Members of this group were allowed to have jobs outside of Synanon and live outside of the Synanon community, provided they gave most of their income to the organization. Mm-hmm. Very classic. Mm-hmm. Um, the new kind of member allowed Synanon to fill its coffers with outside money that it had otherwise been reluctant to receive. After all, the organization was leaving a lot of cash on the table by declining government-funded grants. Why? Those grants stipulated that there be some kind of independent examination and verification of success rates through drug tests and the like, and those were flatly rejected. So it was a way for them to bring in a lot of outside money because they didn't want any government oversight for obvious reasons. Yeah, because they have to prove that success rate. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you've probably noticed, like, the group already is starting to become a little culty. They're just like wanting people to give so much money to the organization. They're kind of like deciding who's in and who's out, like kind of deal. Um, And even from like the first use of verbal abuse through these really long sessions of the game, like that's some cult shit right there. The lifestylers that were bringing outside money in were soon accused of not being devoted enough to the cause. And they... Sounds familiar. Yeah, right. (laughs) And they had a choice of either like joining full time or just leaving. And some did and some didn't. But Diedrich decided once again to change the program, announcing that he would no longer graduate anyone out of the program. Mm -hmm. Mm. Instead, opting to start building his utopian society. Yes. Diedrich said of his plan, quote, this is the kind of revolution that moved the world from Judaism to Catholicism to Protestantism to Synanism. This is a total revolution game. Synanism. Oh, girl, it gets worse. Synanism. At some point, the practice of shaving your head became mandatory for members. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is familiar too, Harry Krishna. Mm -hmm. And it's a common thing in cults, I think, especially around this time, because it was like the illusion of everyone being on equal footing. Like that was Mm -hmm. kind of part. I mean, it's also also about the dissolution of like self, you know, like your your own self identity. Yeah. And it is very much like a control tactic. Right. Mm -hmm. Originally, they had done it as a punishment for the program. And then they did it as like sort of a hazing for new members coming in. And then it just became regular practice. I'll also say that our old friend George Lucas reached out to Synanon for he needed a he needed a bunch of people with shaved heads for extras in THX 1138. So all the bald extras in THX 1138, they're all Synanon members. Which I mean, that movie wasn't that great, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So they, by this point, had established some child-rearing practices as well, which were all handed down by Dietrich himself. Mm -hmm. After kids reached six to nine months old, parents were restricted on how much they'd be able to see them. I know, six, nine months is like tiny. Yeah. 
Often parents would only see their kids once a week, um, which, you know, in an obvious attempt to control his followers. Mm -hmm. In 1970, Diedrich decided to give up smoking, which was something that was like pretty much widely accepted. But Mm -hmm. because he had like everybody had to. And then by 1972, Diedrich was attempting to move all of the children to one central facility in Marin County. This caused like a huge upset. There was 200 to 300 people who left Synanon at this time because they mm-hmm. were like, fuck that. Like, you're not going to keep me here. And this does become very Scientology where it's like they're trying to keep all of the adults here and put all of the children in one. Yeah. One central spot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go through our checklist. Oh boy, okay. So far we've got controlling leader. Mm-hmm. We've got followers giving up their worldly possessions and wealth. Mm-hmm. Abuse sessions. Um, restrictive access to your children, similar dress. By my count, we are missing something that would really push Synanon over the edge. Mm, What is that, Vicky? Tax-exempt status. Ah, yes. (laughs) All good cults, religions. Mm. The idea of legally becoming a religion was presented to the Synanon board, who unanimously approved the idea. This was interesting. According to LA Mag, on one copy of the proposal that had been like written up by the lawyer and then distributed for voting purposes, someone wrote, who will be God? <laughs> who will if be God? If we're going to be a religion, who will be God? Process? <laughs> yeah. Spoiler, it was Dietrich. Oh. But they, it was, it, I mean, it wasn't even like, I mean, similar to yours where it wasn't like a god it was more of a leader but like it was him yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) so synanon applied and was granted religious status by the federal government in 1974 and began reaping the financial benefits of their tax-exempt status not long after synanon which had largely advocated for nonviolence in the beginning began turning far more aggressive to members and non-members alike there were folks within synanon suspected of being spies they Always, very in much cult organization. The paranoia, paranoia started creeping in, so they would just beat these people severely. And teenagers ha- were still being sent to Synanon for juvenile delinquency. They were often physically abused. Synanon formed its own private security force as well as a paramilitary group called the Imperial Marines. Yeah. Now, this is I. This is the thing that I was like, I even made a note to mention this because I feel like you would really appreciate this. Oh boy, goody. Um, they used their all their own type of martial arts that they called Sindo. I hate everything <laughs> about that. What was it? Like, Just S-Y-N-S-G-O. like slapping S-G-O. each other? I have no idea. I had no idea. I should have Googled to see if they had like There's a training video. There's probably a video out there somewhere. Yeah, Sindo. Ew. Does it involve throwing cinnamon buns at people? Because then I'd be down. <laughs> yeah, I'd be down for that, I'm going to start a cult of cinnamon bun. Mm. Cult Cinnabon? <laughs> cinnamon bun. Cinnabon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, later, they would also accumulate an arsenal of weapons, claiming that they were concerned about the crime rate. That's all. That's why we need all these guns. Yeah, sure. Said no one. <laughs> Dietrich also um, tightened his stance on children in general, uh, starting with telling members that they they like if you're thinking about joining and you want to have children, like you might this might not be the organization for you. Like he would start telling people that up front, like 
Tell a lot of cults went. Uh, this the end. <laughs> this morphed into an official synonym policy that said men needed to get vasectomies and women were told to have abortions. I mean, I'm okay with the vasectomies. That sounds great because it's not like I can impregnate myself. <clears throat> True. Uh, <laughs> it is worth noting that Dietrich, of course, did not get a vasectomy himself. <laughs> if we need to have another god after me. It's got to come from yeah, right? loins. <laughs> During a radio broadcast that Dietrich did frequently, it was like a low number FM station that he... Ooh, like Jim Jones recording himself? Yeah. Uh, this is yeah. very... Except, yes, this is very, Slightly very much unhinged? that. unhinged? No. <laughs> no, no he, he very much just says it like it is. Okay. And shows all his cards. And people don't give it like... the. I'm going to read some of the excerpts from these like radio broadcasting quotes from Dietrich himself. And like... The things that he's saying, I'm like, how would you not just, like, how do you not give a shit about any of this? Because he's straight up just like, y'all are stupid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So this is from one of the radio broadcasts. He said, quote, I think children are a very bad investment. All the dummies, you, 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 all of you, you just sit there and this organization gets richer and fatter and more fun to be in and more powerful. You love that. But you're all alike. You're all alike. You sit there, mom, when I make these speeches. I've done exactly like the rest of the guys that run the world. I could have run a state, a country, a city. It doesn't make any difference. I'm one of those guys. I know that magic. Sounds like it, yeah. That's not, I mean, just laying out his hand. Yeah. But then it it does seem like disconnected because he starts with talking about children. Yeah. And then just like goes off into a weird tangent. Yeah, that's true. Um, These new policies saw another wave of members leaving, opting to have kids rather than stay in a cult. Yeah. In 1977, Dietrich's wife passed away from cancer, which like saw this new era of a different kind of crazy from Mm -hmm. the Synanon leader. She was really kind of described as like the, the grounding, holds it together. yeah, the grounding As a force. Does <laughs> that, you know he still was extreme, but like she did kind of chill she him like, out a little bit. Maybe you shouldn't say stuff like that, honey. Yeah. Well, now she's dead, <laughs> and he's like, "Time to fucking go <laughs> off the rails." Uh, so not long after uh, his wife's death, Dietrich declared that quote married Sinanites should split up and find new parts or partners. Um, Classic cult. He started by <laughs> breaking up his own daughter's marriage, and about six, oh. 600 couples were divorced by the following year. So fucking rude. Let them divorce in their own way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just divorce right at <laughs> the time, you know. <laughs> It'll happen eventually. Yeah. Just let them do it. Synanon had very much become a money-making venture also, um, with the organization boasting, quote, 20,000 businesses and organizations giving uh, to or interacting with Synanon by the late 1970s, including one out of five corporations in the Fortune 500 who were listed as either donating or doing business with the organization. Mm -hmm. So they were bringing in money. They also had like a marketing arm. They were like a marketing business. So they were bringing money in that way. Just like my cult. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I saw a lot of similarities. I was like, "Mm -hmm." hmm. In 1978, former member Paul Ritter who had left Synanon after the mass sterilization order came down, was attempting to get visitation with his three-year-old daughter, who was still in the group with his wife. Mm -hmm. Ritter filed a motion to get more visitation, but faced retaliation from Synanon. As he returned home from the grocery store, Ritter was approached by two men with shaved heads who proceeded to beat him with wooden mallets. Uh, Ritter ended up with a fractured skull and was in a coma for a week. Yikes. 
thanks to, and it had something to do with some kind of meningitis, bacterial meningitis, like mm, yeah, yeah. type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the California attorney general said this was one of 18 attacks that were later linked to Synanon. With a one mallet, like their meat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As Synanon became more violent and less utopian, which... Yeah, what a shift. Did not take very long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The media coverage started to sour on them also, and like the effectiveness of the program wasn't really like a drug rehabilitation thing anymore. At the time, there weren't a ton of large news organizations covering uh, Synanon, but there was like this tiny little paper called The Point Reyes Light. And the what? Point Reyes. Right. Ray, okay. Reyes. I don't know what I thought I heard you say. No. You just said it so fast. Point Reyes Light. Okay. They had been endlessly keeping track of what Sinan was up Hopefully to. Someone has a vendetta. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Gizmodo, their stories track Sinanon plots, including, quote, child abuse, wrongful imprisonment, assault, and misappropriation of funds. Classic cult. They had been threatened many times with libel. But they continued Uh to report and eventually won a Pulitzer Prize for the reporting in 1979, which was, like, super unheard of. The paper had, like, it was, like, 1,700. Circulation was, like, 1,700. Mm -hmm. It's Um, hard to do for a tiny paper. Yeah. So, needless to say, like, Synanon was not a fan. Yeah. (laughs) They were not fans of the media criticism. And they sent many a threat to newspapers and news outlets alike, including NBC... But the biggest scandal of all would happen when attorney Paul Morantz entered the picture. Mm, okay. So in 1977, a woman who we will call Sarah, this is not her real name, uh, was living in Venice, California, and struggling with various mental health issues. Um, she she wasn't really a drug addict. She had tried marijuana previously, but like... Who hasn't? <laughs> she, her biggest issue was her mental health. Okay. And so she had gone to like a family clinic that referred her to Synanon. Oh, okay. So they, yep. Interesting. So they, um, Sarah went and visited to see what the deal was. Now this is again, according to Gizmodo quote, when Sarah arrived, the Synanites asked her three questions. First, if she'd ever used drugs before, since she'd smoked, smoked marijuana in the past, Sarah replied, yes. Next, if she wanted their help, she again replied, yes. And lastly, they asked if she would obey Sinanon's rules, and she said yes, end quote. So at that moment, they shaved off her head. Her whole head? Her whole head. <laughs> shaved off her hair. She shaved her head right the fuck off. <laughs> and that's where the crime comes in. Yes. Uh, they, sh- they shaved off her hair, and she was taken by the wrist to an apartment building where she was, like, locked in, essentially. Okay. When... Uh, her husband found out where Sarah was. Mm. Yes, she had a husband. Mm-hmm. She He attempted to visit, but was turned away by the facility. He came back the next day to find out that Sarah had been moved to the Santa Monica facility. So he went up there to try to visit her again up there, but was again turned away. He went back again for a third time, but again, was told that she had been moved to this different facility north of San Francisco. And he decided at that point to go to the police and be like, they took my wife. My wife. And 
Um, the police were like, yeah, she's an adult and like seems to have gone in of her own free will. So there's not really much that we can do. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Sinanon was like telling Sarah, your husband never wants to see you again. And breaking up those marriages in, in following times that he would try to go and see her. Sinanon was like, yeah, Sarah never wants to see you again. Yeah. Sarah's husband managed to get in touch with Morantz through like a mutual acquaintance. Um, and he had done a lot of work with people on Skid Row, like mm-hmm. kind of um, helping them out. So he was well known for that and thought this would be the perfect case for him. Um, the timing was really good because Sarah was having a complete mental health crisis that Sinanon was completely incapable of handling. Like they were not equipped to handle a mental health crisis. So while Morantz and Sarah's husband were like trying to get her out at the same time, Sinanon was kind of like, we need to figure out what to do with this girl and get her out. <laughs> Cause they didn't want to deal with that. But Sinanon was worried about the legal repercussions of like taking her in the beginning <laughs> And asked that a waiver be drawn up prior to her release. Uh, So Morantz drew one up, but rather than put in the verbiage that they wanted, he wrote that they released them of all liability for Sarah's release, not for her, uh, like, being taken into the program. So everyone signed the waiver and was all good with it. And Sarah was released. And then Morantz promptly sued yeah. uh, Sinanon on Sarah's behalf, winning a $300,000 judgment. This was pretty embarrassing to Sinanon. And Dietrich was like enraged. He was pissed. And so he made sure that this would not be the last encounter that Morantz had with the cult. <laughs> On October 10th, 1978, Morantz came home to check his mail. He was extra surprised when he opened the mailbox and was immediately bitten by a rattlesnake. Not what I thought was going to happen. Thought it was going to be a bomb. No, it was a rattlesnake. Um, The people who had placed it there had actually stripped the rattle off of the rattlesnake so that it didn't make any noise while it was. I know. I know. Did that on purpose so that he didn't make any noise in the mailbox. But yeah, he opened the mailbox and got bit by a rattlesnake. So he ran to the street yelling for help, like hoping that one of his neighbors would hear him. And someone did hear him and called 911, got an ambulance, rushed him to the hospital, saved his life um, after some anti-venom. And he was in the hospital for six days. But authorities almost immediately suspected Sinanon because of this lawsuit. Rattle snakes would just crawl up into fucking mailboxes. Right. (laughs) Very weird. I'm like, where do you even think about that? Yeah. (laughs) So they some deeply religious shit too, using snakes. Yes. I've seen those churches Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. dance with snakes and then have people die because they get bit. And then it's like, oh no, Mm -hmm. this is God's pretty, whatever. Um, (laughs) We won't go there. (laughs) So authorities conducted a search of the Sinanon Ranch in Badger when they discovered recordings of Diedrich where he advocated for violence. I was going to say, straight up using snakes. <laughs> on, these, snakes more. <laughs> on, these, on these recordings, he said, quote, we're not going to mess with the old time turn the other cheek religious postures. Our religious posture is don't mess with us. You can get killed. Literally dead. These are real threats. <laughs> Literally dead. 
<laughs> they are draining life's blood from us and expecting us to play by their silly rules. We will make the rules. I see nothing frightening about it. I am quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next breaks it, break his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off. That is the end of that lawyer. This is a very satisfactory, humane way of transmitting information. I really do want an ear in a glass of alcohol on my desk. Oh, wait. First of all, it's formaldehyde, sir. But you just outlined the fact that you were... I love that he's like, make no mistake. We're literally talking about killing. These are actual threats. murder. But also... I'm going to break that lawyer's legs. And, I am and not joking. Legs to arms, leg to leg to fuck that arm. Yeah. <laughs> also cut off his ear and bring yeah. it to my desk. Oh my God. <laughs> um, one of the recordings also contained Marantz's address specifically. <laughs> Which, what did we tell about leaving like journals listen, and diaries? Leaving and journals, don't be like, I did this. At this time, during this day, on this location. At this address, yeah. we left a rattlesnake. Sans rattle. Sans rattle. So, 20-year-old Lance Kenton and 28-year-old Joseph Musico were arrested and charged with attempted murder, while Diedrich was arrested for conspiring to commit murder. All of them pleaded no contest to the charges, and Diedrich managed to secure a plea deal that got him probation, a $10,000 fine, and a requirement that he step down as the head of Synanon. That's it? (laughs) Just step down? Step down. Now, without their founder and leader, Synanon, like, they pretty quickly just collapsed. Mm. And in 1991, the IRS stripped Synanon of its tax-exempt status and ordered the organization to pay $17 million. Love it. it. Uh, There were a ton of, like... When the IRS comes through. Yeah. (laughs) They're just like, um, actually... Um, According to my documentation, you asked, um... $7.5 $7.5 million. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there were a ton of court cases that like followed all of this, most of which were happily aided by Morantz, who provided any and all documentation that he had discovered that related to Sinanon. Mm-hmm. Um, these would later make up his book called From Miracle to Madness, which is about Sinanon. I'm actually, I'm looking forward to reading that. I haven't read it yet, but it mm. sounds really, really good. Now, again, according to LA Mag, quote, the court finally ruled against Sinanon in 1984, finding that it had a policy of terror and violence and a practice of diverting corporate resources for the enrichment of individuals. Uh, Sinanon declared bankruptcy and in 1991 formally dissolved, though there is still a branch that carries on in Germany, apparently. Is it Nazi affiliated? Might be Nazi affiliated. Damn it. <laughs> um, but Diedrich's dead, so that's cool. Uh, he died in 1997 at the age of 83. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's a fucking wild ride. So I'm very much looking forward to like the Synanon documentary yeah. that'll be coming out. Mm-hmm. We'll see how much of this I got right. <laughs> <laughs> really, I just made all of this up. No. Um, it's just, it just is. The fact that he was so... I think the thing that gets me about this is the fact that he was so blunt and like put so much of his his own bullshit that he was like, you guys are the ones that are listening to me doing it. like you fucking sheep. Just, yeah. Yeah. And people still went along with it is just like mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. So before you join a cult, don't drink the flavor aid. <laughs> yeah. Um, and check out this podcast. Make sure to check your mailbox before putting your hand inside. <laughs> oh, my God. For real. <laughs> My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such. 
a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. At Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. All right. That has been our show. We've culted. We've culted. <laughs> um, hopefully we've convinced you not to join a cult. If you I really mean, get that urge. What is a cult? <laughs> yeah, right. Yoga. <laughs> Hot yoga. Stretchy pants are a cult. Listen. What is the weirdest cult Feeling you can attacked think right of? now. I think yoga pants is not the biggest cult, weird cult I think of. Um, Beanie Babies could be considered a cult. True. Beanie Mania. Yeah. You know? Beanie Mania. Next time you get really excited about something, just stop and think about it. The Hun cult. cult? Is this a cult? The Live, Laugh, Love cult. Yeah. The Hun cult. People say veganism is a cult, too. Yeah. Yeah. MLMs, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cults. (laughs) We just got really serious. (laughs) Cult. Um, We do not have any... Events really coming up? Yeah. We're doing nothing now. <laughs> uh, just a reminder that we will not be recording in October. Taking so that a means break. You... Not really a break. Yeah. No, no podcast November. I'm going to be traveling for that. work. <laughs> I'm going to be traveling for fun. I wish it was around. I am I am planning to go to places after I'm done doing the work. Yeah. That will yeah. be fun before I drive back for my. That'll be nice. Anywhere between three to six and a half hour drives that I have to do. <laughs> Uh, so if you enjoyed this episode and you want to find more just like this, you can find them at badtastepodcast.com. That's us. Where you can also find links to our donations and our merch. Um, other than that, you got anything else, Janelle? No. All right. Have a great October. We're going to get up. We still got more. We still got more recordings, I think. I'm in October mode. Yeah, true. I've been in October mode since July. Yeah, I am just like. October. Yes. Probably because it's going to be wonderful and horrifying, but mm-hmm. it's fine. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.